This morning I'm reading to you uh, from three different books of the Bible, but I'm only making you listen to one verse from each one, so that's not bad. We start in Luke chapter 14, verse 11. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then we're jumping way back into Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but wisdom is with the humble. And finally from Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, one thing that you'll learn about me is that I really like history a lot. Um, I'm a nerd, and I read a lot of history. Um, and one, one area of history that's always been of uh, a particular interest to me is World War II, and that's partly because I, I have two grandfathers who served in the U.S. Army during that conflict, and partly because I would come to Corpus every summer for annual conference, and we'd go to the Lexington and see all the stuff on there. But it's also largely because when I was growing up, every single thing that was marketed to young boys was like either a fighter plane from World War II or a video game or a movie or a TV show set during that time, right? So it's like your consciousness is just saturated with it. And then if you like history, you start reading a lot about it. One thing that a lot of people don't realize is that uh, Nazi Germany did not lose the war uh, when, when the Allies landed in Europe or when they crossed the Rhine into Germany. They actually lost the war in the summer of 1941 when they invaded Soviet Russia. It's not really taught in the history books, but in point of fact, that's, that's when it turned against them because, you see, 80% of their military losses in the war happened on the Eastern Front, not facing the U.S. or the U.K. 80%. To put that in context, 10% of the entire population of Germany died fighting the Soviets. Now, the reason they did that was pride. It was a profoundly stupid choice because actually before they invaded, they not only just weren't at war with Soviet Russia, they had a peace treaty with them, right? They had signed an agreement to work together. And if, if the leadership of Nazi Germany had bothered to study history at all, they would have known that every time someone invaded Russia, it went really, really badly for them. In fact, the exact same thing happened to the German army that had happened over 100 years before to Napoleon's army when he invaded Literally, the same sequence of events. They invaded, and the Russians just pulled back and pulled back and pulled back and waited for winter to come and let the weather beat them. Now, the reason they chose to invade anyway is simple. They thought they could beat Russia before winter hit. They thought they could do what no one else had ever been able to accomplish because they believed they were invincible and unstoppable. And so 10% of their entire nation died. History is full of examples 
of empires and regimes that were annihilated because of the pride of their leaders. In a biblical context, you can uh, look at the empire of Assyria and see the same thing. If you read the Old Testament much, you'll hear a a lot about the Assyrian Empire. They rose to power uh, before Babylon, but after the days of King Solomon, when the the kingdom of Israel splits in two and you have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And, And they're not equally divided. Ten of the twelve tribes of Israel are in the northern kingdom, and then Judah has the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, and it's centered on Jerusalem. The Assyrian Empire rose to power, uh, confusingly, not where Syria is, but actually in northern Iraq, uh, right on the Tigris River. And they rose to power largely because they were the first people to use iron instead of bronze for all of their tools and all of their weapons and all of their armor. Now part of that was because iron's everywhere, right? If you dig in the ground, you're going to find iron somewhere most common elements in the earth's crust. Everyone else is using bronze, which is made of copper and tin, which are not as easy to find. So overnight, the Assyrians developed this massive advantage over everyone because they no longer need your copper or your tin mine. And the other thing they did is they developed the world's first fully professional military. Up until then, the people who farmed armies were just the same people who were farming your fields. So you could only fight a war when the farmers didn't have to be home tending your crops. But it was okay because everyone else did the same thing. And all of a sudden, the Assyrian Empire can come and invade your city while all of your soldiers are out in the fields harvesting the wheat. So, in very short order, they spread from this little region of northern Iraq. They spread south down the Tigris and Euphrates rivers all the way to the Persian Gulf. They spread west to the Mediterranean, then down the coast through what is now Israel and on into Egypt. Until they occupied uh, the entire, it's called the Fertile Crescent. It's this green region from the Nile River up the coast of the Mediterranean down the Tigris and Euphrates, the only part of that part of the world where farming is actually easy. In effect, they conquered pretty much the entire known world. Um, And they were astonishingly brutal, cruel people. It was not uncommon when they conquered a city to just burn the whole thing and kill everyone they could find, just to make an example to future peoples they might want to conquer. Look what happens when you defy us. There's actually a story in the Bible when uh, shortly after they've conquered the northern kingdom and, and the king of Judah, the, the final tiny little remnant of the people of Israel that's standing alone, uh, defies the Assyrian Empire and is invaded. And, and it's horrifying. They come through and they destroy cities and burn them to the ground and, and kill everyone they can find. But finally, they lay siege to Jerusalem. And it's a power because it's one of the only times in all of ancient biblical history that an event that happens in the Bible is actually documented in writing outside of the Bible. We have two descriptions of it. And eventually a plague sweeps through their camp and they return home. But they were brutal and they were cruel. When they conquered you, what they did to the people who lived, which wasn't always that many of them, is they took them and they forcibly relocated them within the empire. Because see, then it's harder for you to organize a rebellion which is exactly what happened to the kingdom of Israel. They swept in, conquered it, and then took 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel and scattered them across the Middle East, which is why they are still called the Lost Tribes. Just no one really knew where they went. So for centuries, they rule just about the entire known world, treating everyone with the same degree of cruelty and malice, and assuming all throughout that it's okay because they will never 
ever be in a position to be treated that way by someone else. They're the world's first superpower. No one can challenge them. They don't feel threatened. Until eventually one day, it happened to them. And a combination of small little kingdoms on the fringe of their empire and rebel groups within it rose up together in a coordinated effort. Surrounded their capital city and then did to the, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire exactly what they had done to so many other cities around the world. They broke through the walls. They burned it to the ground and they killed anyone they could find. Men, women, children. They destroyed thoroughly that 500 years later as a group of Greek mercenaries fighting for the Persian Empire were passing through the area and saw this, this ruins of a city, just piles of rubble, and they couldn't figure out who it was from. They didn't know who built it. And they went and they found these little villages in the hillside around it and asked those people, who built that city that's lying in ruins? And no one knew. They were so thoroughly annihilated that people didn't even remember who they were. It wasn't until Oh, well over a thousand years later, as Christians were reading the biblical text and doing archaeology in the Middle East, that they actually started to figure out what those cities were based on where the Bible described them. Their pride destroyed them. Time and time again, pride has laid low empires that thought they would last forever. Because you see, pride, all pride is, is self-confidence at the expense of others. You think about the Assyrian Empire, Nazi Germany. The average everyday people were not responsible for what was going on. It was the people at the top. Their pride not only brought them down, it caused unimaginable harm and pain to the people who they led. Pride affects every single one of us, and it can ruin us. Now, we've, we've been talking about you know, big, high-level stuff, governments and militaries. But pride affects us on a personal level as well. Because everyone from time to time experiences pride to varying levels. Self-confidence at the expense of others can take on all kinds of forms. There's a, a philosopher named Nassim Taleb who wrote a book called Fooled by Randomness. See, in his day job, he's a, he's a stock trader in, on Wall Street. And, and he's, over the years, he's come to believe that everything that happens in the stock market is actually completely random. Right? There, there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just all random. So economists really like this guy. Not very popular, but he's right more often than not. So he, he describes stockbrokers in, in sort of two different groups. You have, you have the more cautious ones who are somewhat aware, at least, that everything is kind of random and, and luck plays a much bigger role than people would like to admit. And so they're very cautious with what they do. They don't take risky moves. They, they, they kind of hedge their bets in every situation and, and make sure that if they take a loss, it's not going to be catastrophic. The downside is then they don't make nearly as much money. And so they're not quite as popular with, with the big firms on Wall Street. But then there's the group of people he calls the lucky idiots, which I love that term. Right? They're just lucky idiots. They get lucky. They strike it big. They make a ton of money. And then they fool themselves into thinking that they succeeded because they are just so smart. Right? And so they do it again and again and again. And they make millions of dollars, tens of millions sometimes in a single day. And they're really popular with the people who run the firm. But inevitably, in every single case, it blows up in their face. Eventually, they don't just lose all the money they made, they lose more than what they made. And then they lose their job. They let their pride trick themselves into thinking that they were in control of more of what was going on than they really were. 
And see, the truth is this, this affects just about all of us. The unfortunate reality of life is that luck plays a much bigger role in our circumstances than many of us would like to admit. For years, I lived in Dallas. We, I've spent a lot of time working closely with people who, who lived in chronic poverty. And, and the one thing that we learned very quickly about all of them uh, was that you know, they, they made poor choices in life. But without exception, uh, all those choices did was amplify their bad luck. We learned really quickly, if you took one of those people and you could give them a check for $100,000 and in a year they'd be in the same boat. Why? Because no one had ever taught them how to handle money. They didn't know. Now that's just a trick of their birth. They didn't have parents who taught them how to save money or how to budget. No one in their life was there to help them out. And it's a story that repeated itself time and time and time again. And the same is true for most of us who live comfortable lives. Now, our life choices matter. They make a difference. But again, what they really do is they amplify the luck that we have. Most of us in this room probably were born to people who were at least living comfortable lives, if not wealthy. We had someone in our lives, whether it was a parent or someone else, who set a good example for us to follow at some point. We've probably had more help along the way than we would like to admit. Again, to varying degrees. And we don't like to acknowledge this, right? Because we want, we want to tell ourselves that, that we are responsible for our own success. But that's only partially true, isn't it? Right? Again, I can look at my own life and I can see all the points where I could have made a bad choice and ruined things for myself. But at the, at the end of the day, uh, I was lucky to be born in a, a household with two parents who loved each other and loved their kids who took the time to uh, teach us how to, how to function in society, who encouraged us to get jobs when we were young so we knew how to manage our time and we knew how to manage money before we left the house. Um, I mean, I was doing my own lottery in fifth grade. Right? I, I was shocked when I came to college and other people didn't know how to do their own laundry. And along the way, I made choices that you know, were good choices that helped me out. But, but the bottom line is, you know, I, I graduated from undergrad with no student loan debt because my parents had been able to pay for it. Uh, I went into seminary with the support of someone who had been through seminary before and knew what to expect. And, uh, and I had parents who, when I was in seminary and, and was dirt poor and, and couldn't always make the rent, I had parents who were willing and able to help me out, right? It makes a difference. I don't like to admit it, though. There's an old phrase, there but for the grace of God go I. It's an acknowledgement that for all of us, things beyond our control could have ruined our lives. And again, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not meant to like disparage your life choices or say that you had no role to play in your own success or your own well-being because you do. It's just meant to point out that there are things beyond your control that set you up for success and that can take you down too. It's a, it's a gaping wound to our pride, though. We don't like it. But you see, pride destroys us. If we, if we keep feeding into our pride, what happens is inevitably we start making foolish choices based off of that. I can tell you right now, my, my biggest problem with pride is not letting people...
I don't want to admit that I need help when I need it. I mean, I had times years ago when I couldn't pay rent, I called my father and asked him to help for rent money for months in a row. And that was painful. But if I hadn't done it, we would have been evicted. Even now, right, there's, there's a big welcome lunch plan for us over in the other building after church. Uh, and in addition to the free food that I'll be happily eating, um, right, there's, there's a gift box. People have been putting gift cards and stuff in this box for us. You got no idea how uncomfortable it makes, right? You notice I didn't do any of the announcements the past month because always there's an announcement asking for people to put things in the box, right? And I just can't bring myself to do that. Don't get me wrong, my wife and I just bought our first house. We just did a move. We have a one-year-old. We can use all the help we can get, but I'm not going to ask for it. Um, <laughs> right? My pride won't let me do it. But you can see how that would easily get us into some pretty, uh, pretty bad situations if my wife didn't have the wisdom to smack me upside the head sometimes and tell me to do it anyway. Pride is self-confidence at the expense of others. But it- Humility is self-awareness at the foot of the cross. Humility is not, uh, we think humility is like a lack of self-esteem or a total lack of confidence. That's not what humility is. Humility is knowing your own strengths and weaknesses. It's understanding your true condition, the true state of your character and your heart. So here's how humility plays a role for me, right? I, I know, and again, this is, I told you before that I'm the most humble guy I know, and I'm really proud of my humility. Um, I, I know, and I can say this, I think, without sounding cocky or arrogant, I know that I'm, I'm pretty good at preaching, right? I'm, I don't think I'm the best, but I, I think I'm, I think, really, in all honesty, I think I'm probably slightly above average for a lot of Methodist preachers. I've heard a lot of Methodist pastors speak, um, So have you. <laughs> so I think that I'm probably a little average, which can get me into trouble sometimes. For the most part, I, I'm, I'm, I'm there. I think I'm pretty good at teaching. I think I teach when I do Bible studies. It's a strength for me. Um, I am terrible at the administrative half of the job. Right? I am disorganized to a shocking degree. Right? One time, my wife, before I went into a semester of seminary, she bought me a planner. At like to plan out the whole semester. She got all my syllabi for me. She said, I'm going to do this for you so you can finally have a planner. You'll know all your assignments. She filled in every assignment from every syllabus on this planner, and I lost it the next day. <laughs> Never once looked at it. Got me in a lot of trouble. Um, so out of humility, because I know what my own strengths and weaknesses are, I know anytime I go into a new church that I have to surround myself with people whose strengths line up with it's humility. It's knowing where I'm good and where I'm not. See, if pride creates a dangerous, unhealthy, foolish level of confidence, humility actually leads to a healthy level of confidence. Because you actually know what you're capable of and what you're incapable of. You know where the line needs to be drawn. Humble people are not... Uh, unsure of themselves. Quite the opposite. Truly humble people are extremely confident because they know exactly what they can and cannot do. They know exactly how to handle themselves. 
read through the Gospels and you see that Jesus is extremely humble. But he's definitely quite confident. The two uh, are, are not opposites. They go hand in hand. We are called to be holy. That's part of, you read it all throughout the Bible, right? God says to the Israelites over and over again, be holy for I am holy. We're supposed to be like Christ who was holy. Uh, we even have our own word for it, like the, that just the Methodists use. No one else uses this, it's sanctification. Uh, it, it's actually just a Latin word that means being made holy. Um, but we had to get fancy with it. But it's actually a, a central part of what we believe. That, that part of being a Christian is that it's not just that you, you pray a special prayer one day and you're saved and then you're good all the time. It's that as you are a Christian in your daily life, you are striving for sanctification. You're trying to be more and more holy each and every day. You, you simply cannot do that if you are not first humble. You can't be holy if you're not humble. Because part of that path, striving for holiness, means understanding what you're good at, understanding where your faith is strong, and also understanding where you are most tempted. Knowing exactly where you need to keep an eye out because that's where sin's going to strike the hardest. Learning how to avoid it. Not only how to resist it, but, but simply how to cut the temptation out of your life altogether learning when to ask people around you for help. Saying to someone, you know what? I am really struggling right now. Would you pray with me? Would you just sit with me for a while? I need some support. Holiness requires, before anything else, that we first see our own shortcomings. So that we know where our weaknesses lie. But perhaps more important than that, we have to see our own shortcomings, see our own sin, so that we can be aware of just how desperately we need the grace of God. If you don't know how much you need it, you won't value it. If you don't know how much you need it, you won't be aware of how much other people need it. Or you'll be too aware of how much other people need it and not nearly aware enough of how much you need it, right? And then you become judgmental. Oh, you people need Jesus. Right? I'm fine, but y'all, woof! You see, practicing that self-awareness at the feet of Jesus doesn't just show you It also lets you see properly the people around you. Let's you see how much they need Jesus. It lets you see that you're all in the same boat because you need him too. Before we can practice holiness, we have to be humble. We have to be self-aware. We have to learn to sit at the feet of Jesus and, frankly, to compare ourselves to him sometimes to see where it is we're falling short. And, just so that we don't get too down on ourselves, to remind us that everyone else is falling short in different ways. Even your stunningly handsome pastor, 
has some issues he needs to work on. You can ask his wife. You see, again, I know this church is asking for a revival. Right? I've seen find out. What you want is a revival. And before you get there, you have to be a church that is practicing holiness, that is striving to be more and more holy. Because, see, that's the kind of thing that, that people see and they instantly know something's different. And before you can be holy, you have to be humble. You have to be willing to abandon your pride and sit at the feet of Jesus for a while to see yourself as you really are and to be okay with it. Flaws and all. That might mean taking a break from social media because the Lord knows social media does not help you with the humbleness thing, Right? In fact, it's just a tool for us to put our best selves out there and hide the flaws within. See, a holy community is one where you don't just know your own, but you know the flaws of the people around you and they know yours and no one judges you for it. Because we all understand that we are working together to be more like Christ. A holy church is a growing church. And a holy church is a humble church. So, if you'd like to see your church grow, the first thing to do is plant yourself at the foot of the cross and see yourself as Jesus sees you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.